0: there, this is Damien Blinkensop with The Quantified Body. This is a show where we look at cutting-edge tools and tactics to improve our body's health, performance, and longevity, and we do this with a quantified perspective. Always looking for the data, such as biomarkers, for real evidence. If you'd like a specific topic or guest on the show, you can hit me up on Twitter at Biohacks. That's at Biohacks. In today's topic, we're looking at oxidative stress again. We already looked at this in episode 4, We looked at measuring oxidative stress and how to lower it with Cheryl Burdett. That was a broad look at oxidative stress and antioxidant markers. Today we're going to deep dive into one of the more accurate and reliable markers, F2 isoprostanes, which is a marker of lipid peroxidation. Why is this interesting? Well, the state of lipids is important for the functioning of cells. Our cell membranes are made up of fats. And when the lipids in those cells get damaged, that increases DNA damage and the risk of cancer and literally can cause red blood cells to rupture, spilling the contents out into the blood. If you test for these and they come back high, you would look at sources of oxidative stress in your lifestyle, which could be infections, toxins, or other stressors, whether you feel it or not, it will be affecting your performance, your health and longevity. And there's adjustments you could make there to lower those and thus perform better be healthier, live longer. We're also today gonna look at an N equals one experiment on diet and nutrition, and discuss how to get the most out of it. So I'll be looking at things that you should track and why you should track them, and what actions it can lead to eventually, and the value you can get out of it. Today's guest is Joshua Fessel, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Pharmacology at Vanderbilt University. His research interests focus on pathways that control molecular metabolism, looking at the Krebs cycle, for example, Mitochondrial Function and Interactions Between Oxidative Stress and Cellular Metabolism, what we're looking at today. He's an author of 39 studies on these subjects, and he's worked on research in isoprostanes directly with L. Jackson Roberts, one of the men responsible for the discovery of isoprostanes in 1990. He's also the founder of Vanderbilt's Mitochondria Interest Group, a multidisciplinary group of nearly 100 investigators who study all aspects of mitochondria biology and metabolism so you know obviously mitochondria is another thing that comes up in the show quite often to get a summarized list of biomarkers labs tools and tactics and the transcript from today's show go to thequantifiedbody.net and pick out the episode there if you want all of that in your email inbox every week go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash newsletter put your email in there and you'll get that information in automatic updates the quantified body new technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day this data promises to help us make better decisions for better health higher performance less disease and greater longevity in the quantified body we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real world results improving bodies and improving lives hi Joshua, will
1: thank you so much for joining us today sure no thanks for having me this is uh, this is really fun for me this is Uh, a new thing for me, but uh, I'm really looking forward to it.
0: Excellent. Excellent. I really enjoy these two. So we're both coming at it with enthusiasm. (laughs) Absolutely. So first of all, I always like to hear people's stories a little bit about how they started working with what they're working with. So how did you get interested in the subject of oxidative stress and start working on that?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I've been thinking about oxidative stress for the last almost 16 years, I guess. And it really started... When I was in graduate school or looking to start graduate school, I uh, started a training program to train both as an MD, so as a clinical, uh, clinically trained physician, but also to get a PhD. You know, to do a, a research degree in some area. And I was casting about, looking for what I thought would be an interesting area of study for my PhD research. And um, I ended up talking to a guy named Jack Roberts. Um, Goes by Jack. His his full name is is L Jackson Roberts II. So if you if you looked for him in the literature, that's how you'd find him. But but I sat down to talk to Jack and and found out that he and I the important part about the conversation was that he and I were very much of. Uh, like mind when it came to thinking about science, that the idea was that you could take the fundamental principles of of chemistry and physiology and apply those to living systems in a way that you could learn meaningful stuff. And it turned out that what Jack studied uh, and still studies actually, he still has a very active lab, is um, oxidative stress and and free radical injury in biological systems. And so, so I was really drawn to the the approach that the lab took, you know, basing things in Organic chemistry and, and biochemistry, and then going all the way to studies in in living people. Mm. So that's how I first got interested in it, and what was going on in the lab. It it became it, it was one of those things that I thought it would be fun when I started, and it turned out to be even more fun than I thought it was. <laughs> that's and, great, great to hear. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's really how I got started, um, and uh, things really took off. We did some some work to to discover a, a new class of of biomarker for for oxidative injury. And then that led to an interest in mitochondrial function and and how oxygen is regulated dynamically in a living system. And that kind of led to what I do now, which is more focused on a a broader perspective, looking at mitochondrial function and and molecular metabolism, carbon source utilization and in living systems. What what are the fuels? How do they get used? And how do those decisions get made?
0: Great, great. So so does that still involve oxidative stress? Are you looking at... Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the, the two are,
1: are very closely linked. I, I think about it like a, a car engine. Hmm. And if a car engine runs perfectly, with perfect efficiency, every drop of fuel is converted to motion, to useful energy. But we all know that, that doesn't really happen and that you get uh, leaks in the system. Uh, some of that, when a car engine leaks out, as heat. Sometimes leaks out as actual, you know, sort of fuel or other things. And and the the human body is is really no different. Um, and so, if the cellular engine runs perfectly, uh, every molecule of fuel is converted to carbon dioxide and water and useful energy. But that doesn't happen perfectly, and and the the byproduct, the leak, is uh, uh, free radicals, and that gets you right into oxidative stress.
0: Right, right. And why do you feel this is an important subject? Ox- oxidative stress, are these leaks? And maybe we could talk about a little kind of broad strokes of like where the leaks are bigger and smaller. But in terms of oxidative stress, why, why do you think that's something worth looking at? And would it be worth tracking, for instance, in people as, as they age or as they go through different health conditions or even perhaps when they're looking at performance?
1: So I definitely think it's something worth looking at. I, it's actually—I'll I'll tell you—I I have a personal sort of one-man crusade to actually get rid of the term oxidative stress because I think it's—I uh-huh. think it's too nonspecific. Um, mm. it, it sort of carries with it the idea that every free radical that's produced in a living system is is bad, and we know that's not right. Um, some of them are mm-hmm. quite useful uh, and serve signaling roles, bacterial killing roles. Some of them under particular circumstances, are harmful. And I think that's really what we worry about. So I I talk a lot of times, uh, and I'm trying to be more rigorous in in my scientific writing, talking about oxidant injury versus oxidant signaling and and teasing those two apart. But but I definitely think it's something worth studying, quantifying, tracking in detail, because fundamentally, I think, Mm -hmm. we still don't really understand all of the concepts that that tease apart useful oxidant production from harmful. And so one of the ways that I think we can start to get at that is collect data and, and be careful about how we define the conditions that we're studying. And then from there, you can begin to kind of back-calculate and figure out, okay, in this situation, a little bit of, of stress to the system maybe was actually useful, whereas in this other situation, it was clearly harmful. Um, And so I I Mm. think in spite of the fact that people have been studying free radical biology and oxidative stress for for decades now, there's still a lot we need to learn um, before we really can translate those findings into something actionable so that I could tell you, oh, you have high levels of biomarkers, A, B, and C, so you should do this. Uh, We're not there yet.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's still many different theories. Uh, I guess you're juggling and trying to prove and disprove uh, different ones. Um, let's take a step back. It's always interesting to see how someone, especially someone working in this area and doing the studies and everything, it's interesting to what they do with themselves. So have you tracked your own oxidative stress or you followed that? Do you ever do you look at that in yourself and have you compared it over maybe a few years or anything like that?
1: That's a great question. So um, I... I have measured my own levels of, you know, I it, I probably shouldn't admit this. You aren't really supposed to do this, but what we all do in science, where you need a so-called normal sample, and so a lot of times that ends up being you. Uh-huh. And so, so, so in some small studies, yeah, I have actually done that um, on a routine basis. There's nothing that I that I track as far as oxidative stress or, or products of redox reactions. Um, this question always comes up as to, as to what would a person track. I think in a research setting, there are a lot of things that are useful uh, to look at. And, and I've certainly participated, as I say, in, in research studies of, of, for example, looking at products of lipid peroxidation and looking at oxidized lipids that float around in the plasma. And I think that's really useful. But when it comes to what I will recommend to a, a person, or what I do uh, myself, I, I tend to be a little more conservative because I, I I really hang up isn't exactly right, but I focus on that word actionable because I might be able to tell you that on any given day, oh, eight oxels of isoprostanes are this, and my levels of you know guanosine are this, and my levels of malondialdehyde or, or whatever the product is, but I don't really know what to do with that. Um, and so when it comes to a person in the real world, whether it's you or me or a patient of mine or whomever, I, I tend to focus on on pretty low-level stuff. Uh, and this is true in, in my own life. Um, I tend to focus on pretty low-level stuff that we know has a, a pretty clear impact on health and, and well-being.
0: By that, I guess you, you mean that you like to focus on biomarkers which have been used consistently for a long time I have 20 years of research behind them oh. are linked to specific disease conditions or aging that's exactly right, right.
1: um
0: my understanding is that i'll maybe start calling it oxidant injury <laughs> 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 um maybe that that would be the correct term but as i understand it like f2 isoprostanes and and ato dg uh guanosine i was a problem with pronouncing that one and th- these are linked to aging as one byproduct, just as we get older, these tend to correlate where we kind of slope and, and, and steadily get higher. Is, is that true?
1: That, in general, that is true. I mean, in a broad sense, most products of, uh, of oxidant injury will tend to increase with age. And this gets at the whole free radical theory of aging the idea that at the molecular level, one of the things that drives the aging process is that slow leak of free radicals that, that's just part of the normal process of being alive and, and having an active metabolism in an, you know, in an environment that is, you know, or an atmosphere that's 21% oxygen. And I think there's, there's some core validity to that idea. And in general, I think it's right. In the specifics, I think there's still a lot we're learning. I was just reading a paper this morning, for example, uh, just published that where in a given cell or organism free radicals are produced can have a pretty profound impact on on lifespan. Um, Now, this was in a very simple model organism, and how this actually maybe applies to you or me, that's anyone's guess. But I think that's what makes it fun, is that in general, I think the the theory has validity. And and that's evidenced by the fact that somebody who's 80 years old, by and large, is going to have a higher circulating level of F2 isoprostanes than somebody who's 20. But there are a lot of variables that come into play and and we're just teasing all those out. And I think it's really fun to do that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I guess there's like two things we're often trying to do. Like sometimes we're trying to diagnose or basically zero in on something we can act on okay, to take to your, is it actionable? Here at the Quantified Body, we're all about action. Exactly the same like idea, you know? If we're measuring it and it's not actionable, well, there's not much point, especially as a lot of these tests or devices or things out there are, are relatively expensive. And we talked about that on like you know shows before. So you have to really be careful about which measures you're willing to invest your time in because it also takes time, convenience. There's also all sorts of pay, like payoffs in that equation in terms of your lifestyle and the benefits you're getting out of it. So in terms of the payoff for these, would it be interesting, for instance, to relate that to age? If you're interested in longevity, would it be interesting to track? You've focused a lot of your work on F2 isoprostane and the benefits of that marker. Um, so based on your knowledge, would it be something useful? If I started tracking it now and continued for the re- next 10 years, would it be possible to compare myself to benchmark people of the same age? And then also maybe get concerned if it's tended to, go into an upward trend that I felt was sharper than, than I'd want at this stage of life?
1: That's a really interesting question. And I'm trying to think if I know of a study where anybody's done that,
0: where, where they've actually
1: looked over time at a cohort of people to see what happens. I can't call one to mind, which is not the same thing as saying it hasn't been done. It might be very interesting. You're exactly right when you, when you say that the way that you'd want to think about that the first thing you'd want to know is a fairly large group of essentially normal people or, or more or less normal people of varying levels of fitness and varied diets and all that kind of thing. What does the population look like with respect to any uh, biomarker, be it F2 isoprostanes or, or whatever? And then that gives you a basis for comparison. And then it might be very interesting to see what one's individual trend over time was with regard to that some markers would be easier to do that with than others. There are lots of ways to measure these things, and some of those, some of the methods are more robust than others, and, and that kind of thing. And so, you know, for example, we've we've talked a little bit about F two isoprostanes and, and related lipid peroxidation products that I've studied over time. Those are really, really robust markers. They're chemically stable. They're detectable in every biological sample type you can think of. Um, They're detectable at at pretty small levels, so you don't need a huge signal to confidently say, okay, the level of F2 isoprostanes in the blood or the urine or whatever was this. The problem is that they are expensive to quantify. And for a really robust measurement, it requires a a pretty sophisticated setup. It's mass spectrometry and blah, blah, blah. So so it sort of fails that aspect, or, or it fails on that criterion for an ideal test, which should be easy, cheap reliable, robust, applicable to a wide range of situations. And so so I think we're still in terms of what a person would do on a day-to-day basis, I, th- I think we still don't have the perfect thing to look at and and I've had people ask me, you know, well, should I send in a sample for this array of tests for oxidative stress or whatever? And, and my general answer is, If you want to know and you've got the disposable income to do it, yeah, that's probably okay. But it shouldn't be the top thing on your budget Um, because there are lots of simple things to do that we know are going to have a positive impact on oxidative stress, and on every other aspect of health, you know, dietary things to think about, regular uh, exercise, all that kind of stuff. And so in that regard, the other thing is that as far as the normal aging process goes, I don't yet have a, an intervention that I can tell you to try that will reliably slow down or, or modify the, the aging process. There are a few things that look promising, but, but I couldn't say, oh, you seem to be aging rapidly. Uh, why don't you try this?
0: Well, so I mean, that's an interesting discussion, and longevity is one of the things we look at. And we recently had Aubrey de Grey on the show. If you've heard of him or you've followed some of his work, he's he's very focused on longevity and promoting, um, ending the the aging equation and investing in research. I actually wrote a book about uh, the mitochondrial theory of radicals and so on. So you know, I'm sure you've connected there. But so he's looking at a whole bunch of markers every year, 160. But I think he feels like you do that. He's really looking for something that goes. Perhaps an extreme, I think, I think maybe this is like an angle that could be interesting, is like if something goes extreme in terms of it's nearly off the normal curve, you know, it's in the top 10% or the top 5%, then it gives you reason to kind of look at it. But while it's remaining within a range which has been detectable, um, then I think what you're saying is like it's not like it's very actionable. Or you really can think of something. And I guess oxidative stress, is there's still a lot of controversy around it, oxidative injury. So when it comes to vitamins, vitamin C, vitamin E, uh, succinate and other interventions that people use to try and increase their antioxidant levels and and lower oxidative stress, I guess the, in terms of the actual research supporting that and, and evidence, it's not really there yet. So but what we were just talking about um, before this chat and we'll talk about it more is a diet. And there's obviously a lot of people doing different diets today. And it's a subject we discussed before. And I'll keep coming back because there's so much confusion over which diets work and which don't and what they're useful for. But I think it does come to mind that your diet could have an impact on your oxidative stress level. So potentially tracking F2 isoprostane uh, once per year and changing your diet, you know, for a year and seeing what happens or perhaps a shorter amount of time might be something relevant just to see if that has an impact in terms of how would you compare it to, say, inflammation, such as high sensitivity CRP, which is a bit very common standard uh, measure of inflammation. So you can often see an impact in CRP uh, when it comes to diet, pretty substantial and pretty, it varies. I've been following mine, for instance, for a very, very long time. And as I've changed my diet and optimized it, like it's virtually zero at this point where it started at closer to one, like around 0.8 or something around, which isn't high, but it's just, you can see the difference over time. So I'm wondering if you could see that kind of uh, change over time. If you feel that you might be able to see that, I know maybe in the research it might not exist, but it sometimes if we're looking to kind of go ahead of the research and just see, it's like these n equals one experiments, and maybe we can inspire someone to do some research um, if we go ahead. Absolutely, no,
1: I think that kind of thing would could be very valuable, and in, in small studies, those sorts of interventions have been done, where you know people have been transitioned to. So, for example. Um, Jack Roberts, the guy I mentioned, the guy that discovered isoprostanes, did a small study where he took young, relatively healthy, in other words, no chronic diseases, non-smoking adults, but who were overweight and measured F2 isoprostane levels, and they were increased, and then had them participate in a program of caloric restriction. So they did, It was, and it was pretty robust. It was about a, a, a 40% caloric restriction, so 60% of of their typical caloric needs averaged over like a three-day period or something like that.
0: So could you just uh, specify, is that caloric restriction based on normal human needs, or was it based on their original intake?
1: If I remember, uh, I got to think about that. Um, They... It may have been based on normal dietary recommendations. I'm trying to remember what the specifics mm, of the study. We can check
0: that. We can link to the study or, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, also, it's not it's yeah. not essential, but you know, I thought it was an interesting thing. I imagine they probably did it normal human intake.
1: I think that's yeah. probably what they did, actually, because um, although, as I recall, they did sort of do a food diary and the caloric intake that these people had, while they were overweight, it wasn't wildly off what the normal recommendations were, you know, maybe 10% different or something like that. But the only intervention for uh, for the short period of time was a caloric restriction, and there was a rapid fall in plasma F two isoprostane levels um, well before there had been any substantial weight loss. I think the average weight loss uh, at the time of the, of the nadir of F of two isoprostanes was something like pound or two, so it, it was not a significant uh, percentage of body weight. But there was this really. Pretty impressive effect on on this marker of, of oxidant injury, and so so I think what you're what you're describing, tracking over time within an individual and modifying diet in some way, be it increased antioxidant intake or or even a, if somebody had weight to lose and they wanted to try a a more um, calorically conservative diet, and and then track markers like that, I, I think that could be very informative if the means exist to do it and all that kind of thing.
0: Well, so let's talk a bit more about the isoprostane because your work has kind of shown, as I understand it, that it, it's one of the better markers uh, compared to the ones that are used more popularly, we'll say today still, um, because they're kind of the ones, I don't know how you say, the, the ones who have been in place a long time. So what kind of markers exist today and why do you feel that the F2 isoprostane has you know, been a, a more useful marker?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. So so there are tons of markers that you can look at, and most of them are some byproduct of free radicals reacting with some large class of, of biological molecules. So you can look at the products of free radical reactions with sugars or lipids or proteins or DNA or, you know, and and depending on where you start from, that determines what kind of product you end up with.
0: And so it's kind of like you're just trying to measure the volume of free radicals by what happens when they hit other things. And that's right.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah, because by their nature, free radicals are, are fairly evanescent things. They're reactive and, and they they don't last long. There are techniques to actually measure the radicals themselves. And those rely on techniques like electron paramagnetic resonance measurements and that sort of thing. So they're very specialized techniques and and they're really kind of research only sorts of deals and um you know, So if you really want to know about the radicals themselves, that's what you end up doing. But for most of us, and again, if you're thinking about oxidant injury in particular, I actually find it more useful to look at the byproducts of reactions that we know to be fairly uncontrolled reactions. Because in my mind, that conceptually gets you back to a process that's injury as opposed to a deliberate signal. So, So you can look at anything from... You know, we mentioned 8 That's a product of, of free radical interaction with uh, DNA. You can look at, you know, malondialdehyde, which comes from uh, lipids and can come from some protein oxidation. There are protein carbonyl assays you can look at, and so so they all tell you some information. The reason that we've settled on uh, F two isoprostanes and related compounds is that they for, we we know a lot about the chemistry of formation. We know from the moment the, the inciting radical is generated, we can walk through the reactions that lead to FG formation. And this is through work that, that Jack did when these things were first discovered in the early 1990s. We know that once they're formed, uh, they hang around in a more or less unchanged structure, a more or less unchanged form. Uh, and further, when they do get metabolized, we know what the metabolites are. So there's no source of, of spurious generation. When you look at things like malandialdehyde or, or like the, the T-bars assay, the thiobarbituric acid reacting substance, the problem with assays like that is that they tend to generate some signal in the process of the measurement itself. And so you, it's hard to know, except in a relative sense, how much of what you're measuring was there to start with and how much of it came about as a result of the measurement itself. By contrast, I've heard Jack tell the story a few times of when they when they discovered the isoprostanes um, back in the early '90s. They did an experiment where they took a, a beaker of urine and sat and measured the level of isoprostanes in the urine, and then sat the beaker of urine on a hot plate for about 72 hours, which ought to any any spurious generation is going to happen. That'll do it, and uh, the levels were. Uh, Exactly the same as they had been three days before. So wow, yeah, awesome. so really robust and
0: yeah, and so that means you could ship it around the world. Yes, Are, so you're talking about urine samples yes. here. Yes, yes, right. So that's also very accessible. Correct compared to blood.
1: That's correct, yeah. So exactly what you say has has been done. We've analyzed urine samples from the deep jungles of Southeast Asia, looking at measurements in patients with malaria and all that kind of stuff. And so um, so it is really robust uh, in that regard. And so there's also a series of studies, actually, that are sort of interesting reading. Uh, called the Biomarkers of Oxidative Stress Study, or the BOSS study. And this was published in four or five installments. It was a study sponsored by the National Institutes of Environmental Health Sciences. And the NIEHS wanted to know exactly the question that you're asking. What are the best markers of oxidative stress or of oxidative injury in a living system? And so they did head-to-head comparisons of a variety of different biomarkers, in a bunch of different contexts, starting with different oxidants, looking at different biological samples, um, and for the, you know, the the isoprostanes emerged as one of the most robust, and, and it, I don't want to overstate it, it's certainly not the only thing that's useful to look at, but but in the BOSS studies, the isoprostanes emerged as one of the most robust across a variety of context samples, that kind of thing. But, but the BOSS studies are, you know, they're NIH-sponsored, they're publicly available, they're kind of interesting reading, actually.
0: Great. Yeah, well, definitely, we'll link to all of this stuff in the show notes. One of the the big things I understood was that there was a difference between in vivo and in vitro. Could you talk about a little bit about that? Because sometimes people go and read studies, or they go to a link for a study, and it'll be in vitro. They just assume that it's going to be exactly the same in, in the body. So, first of all, in vivo means inside the body, and in vitro basically means in a test tube, in a living system. Right,
1: that's right. Yeah. So most of the time, when people talk about in vitro, they're talking about something up to uh, cells growing in a dish. So it might be pure chemicals in a test tube. It might be cells growing in a dish, something like that. In vivo uh, is is referring to in some intact living system, uh, sometimes as simple as a worm or a fly, but it's an intact organism, worm, fly, mouse, human, something like that. Um, and yeah, so, so the distinction is really important. You can make lots of things happen in a test tube or in cells in a dish that... May never happen in a living system for a thousand different reasons. Just as one sort of easy example to to grasp, if you've got cells growing in a dish, they have a very limited capacity to respond to any uh, insult you throw at them. And you know that's not true of an intact uh, human being, for example. You know, you've got all sorts of immune responders and and chemical antioxidants and and the liver and the kidneys eliminate toxins and this and that. Yeah, so, so there's interplay of a of hundred different systems uh, in an intact organism that may run counter to or may enhance the effect that you're looking at. And so to extrapolate from a test tube or cells in a dish to a person or even a mouse in a cage is that's a long stretch. Now, what we constantly do in our research is exactly that. We find something interesting in a very simplified system in vitro. And then we say, can we find any echo for this in the living system? Can we see the same thing or how is it modified between the cells in the dish and the person in the lab?
0: Great, great. And in terms of these oxidant injury markers, I'm trying to adopt your your expression there. What did you find in terms of the markers? Were there some of them which were working better within vivo? Because I mean at the end of the day we want to know what's going on in the body, of course. That's
1: exactly right. One of the other reasons that we really like lipid peroxidation products in general or or that I really like lipid peroxidation products in general and isoprostanes in particular and and related compounds is that every cell with a membrane is fair game. For study, so for example, if you wanted to measure uh, DNA oxidation products, well, there there are cells in your body that lack DNA. Red blood cells, for example, um, have no DNA in them. Platelets have little shreds of DNA, um, but every cell has a membrane, so every cell is fair game for study. And it lets you really refine your question. It also means that um, if I can get a hold of the membrane. I can study it in vivo, even down to the subcellular level. So so I can take a sample of liver tissue, skeletal muscle, whatever, and get the mitochondria out of it and measure the levels of isoprostanes or isofurans or whatever in the mitochondrial membrane. And I can tell you something about what happened to that level of detail in a living system. And so that's how we try to bridge that gap between things that are very simplified in vitro and and move it into in vivo. But there are lots of things that that you can do um, in that regard. There's a lot of literature, for example, on looking at uh, oxidized DNA floating around in the plasma as a as a marker of not only of of oxidant injury, but of of cellular injury. So people are looking at the DNA contained within mitochondria, for example, and looking not only at how much of it is there floating around in the plasma, because um, it's not really supposed to be there in its free form, but of that, how much of it is oxidized and how extensively, and and you can get a a really pretty granular view of what's what must be going on at the cellular level. Now it doesn't tell you things like is it in one specific spot in the body or is this a whole body thing, but but you can get pretty detailed information in in a living human from a research standpoint. A living human is is a really complex and and sort of filthy place to do your research, right? I mean, it's very uncontrolled. There are a million variables that you can't do anything about. and, and yet that's what you have to do. And, and the techniques are such that we in a research setting we can we can get pretty detailed.
0: Yeah, because I mean the body has so many variables. If you're just thinking about it as a long dynamic uh, equation, some crazy calculus, there's so many variables that to do science is actually really difficult because you have, you can't control so many different uh, variables that are going on. So, you know, you have to appreciate the efforts people are making to study how we work um, just in the incredible complexity. We've looked at hormesis quite a bit, which I think illustrates quite well the concept you're explaining here about in vivo being different, where we have things like a hormetic curcumin, for example, you put it into the body and it ends up creating some kind of anti-stress, like a antioxidant effect. Although the, like the mechanism as we understand it today is actually a small oxidant kind of injury as I understand it. So there you see, like it's causing the opposite effect of what you thought. I'm um, sorry. It's very illustrative of the importance of focusing on it in vivo. So, okay. We understand why you like isoprostane. Is there, what kind of things we, have you seen, uh, reduce high levels of isoprostane? If anything, you mentioned caloric restriction has been seen. What is there, are there any other things that have been seen that have some kind of impact on it? Yep. You can
1: supplement, uh, dietary antioxidant intake and, and see, A measurable effect on on isoprostanes, and there are a number of studies that have that have done that using various uh, dietary sources. Regular exercise is a pretty clear. It's interesting, and this may get to that idea of hormesis. Um, There was a study where they took people, and this maybe isn't surprising when you say it out loud. They took uh, ultramarathoners and measured their levels of isoprostanes right before and right after. An ultramarathon, and then maybe up to a week later, and not surprisingly, right after the run, and obviously these are extremely fit people. Right after the run, their their levels of of isoprostanes were were incredibly high,
0: sky high, yeah, yeah. cancer levels, or right,
1: right, right. Or, or yeah, or more. Yeah. I mean, it, if you just looked at the numbers and didn't know what had happened, you'd say, "Oh my God, what's what's going on with these people?" But as you say, you know that, that it's it's the biological equivalent of that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger, and and so clearly these people are fit. And when you look at their baseline levels, their baseline levels were quite low. So regular exercise, we know, improves either uh, improves the efficiency of the machinery that tends to leak free radicals, or improves the ability to respond, and maybe both. So it's it's a lot of the things that that you might guess at. Anyway, a healthy diet that's low in fat and high in fresh fruits and vegetables, that kind of thing. Oh, the other really big thing is we know um, from a number of studies that smokers are under a huge, constant oxidant stress. It not only enhances the formation of free radicals, but smoking and, and it goes hand in hand with this depletes uh, levels of multiple different endogenous antioxidants. And so, so the other thing that we know um, is beneficial is if you smoke, please stop. Right.
0: So so you're talking about glutathione and... Yep,
1: glutathione, ascorbate. Uh, I can't remember if there was a measurable effect on vitamin E or not. Uh, lipoic acid, many of the usual suspects, and they were all depleted in the smokers.
0: Great, great. So I guess increasing your glutathione or having low glutathione is going to have an impact on your isoprostane levels just because your indigenous antioxidant system is different. Well, you brought up a very important aspect of it there was that they went for a run of a few hours and they completely change their isoprostane levels. So then we have to think about, okay, we really have to control if this can change that rapidly, given that that was quite an extreme circumstance. But what kind of things do we have to control for to make sure that we're getting some kind of useful reading with isoprostanes?
1: Yeah, no, that's a really good question. So we know that people who are... Heavier, who are overweight or obese, have higher levels. So you got to control for that. As I say, we know that smokers have higher levels. So you have to control for variables like that. It ends up being a lot of the variables that you would control for in a fitness type of study, anyway. Turns out that the specifics of, at least in, in a short time window, the specifics of dietary uh, composition aren't as important as you would think. So years back, we actually did an experiment in the lab where a bunch of us, because we wanted to know. Is it possible that what you're measuring when you measure a plasma level of isoprostanes, for example, is coming in with the food you're eating? So we went and a bunch of us in the lab went and got a very uh, high fat meal from a popular fast food chain
0: and measure. our levels. <laughs> Which You won't say the name, but we can guess. I, I won't necessarily
1: say the name of <laughs> Have I been
0: in the news lately?
1: <laughs> almost certainly. Um, and uh, so, so we measure our levels beforehand, blood and urine and then ate a very fatty meal, and then uh, I think it was something like six, eight hours later, measured plasma and urine levels, and they really didn't change, which was kind of a surprise, but it was very reassuring. It suggested that, that what you're measuring is, is more reflective, uh, or, or at least if it's not more reflective of a steady state, it's at least not so sensitive that you can tip it with...
0: We've just done one meal. That's right. Right, right. But,
1: okay. but overall, dietary composition is something you'd want to know something about if you were doing a controlled uh, measurement.
0: Is there anything about like time of day or with a lot of blood tests, we'll we do fasting, is it, would it make any difference if, you know, we first overnight, say it's an eight hours or 12 hours um, and then do it in the morning or is it, is it okay in the evening to take your sample then if it's urine, for example? Are those kind of influences important? How about like summer, winter? Are these good questions? Because if I imagine like I'm interested in tracking is just say for aging or some other aspect, then, you know, I, I want to know that I'm not just going to get hectic data, basically, like one day up, one day down, one season up, one one season down, and basically become completely fooling myself that I'm tracking anything useful.
1: That's exactly the right question to ask. So as far as we know, at least in plasma levels, there's no diurnal variation Uh, And that's true, actually, of a lot of the different measures, not just isoprostanes. If you're measuring anything in urine, in general, the best time to measure is the first morning urine, not because necessarily you get diurnal variation, but what happens is as you're awake throughout the day, you tend to take in fluid, and that's going to tend to dilute your sample. But that's true of almost literally anything you would measure in the urine.
0: Well, that's a great rule you just gave us, sir.
1: Yeah. And then as far as seasonal variation, that's a really interesting question. To the best of our ability to determine, no, there isn't any seasonal variation. So um, I actually did a study uh, when I was in graduate school to see if sun exposure had any impact because you're delivering radiation to a large area of the body if you're out in the sun and radiation is ionizing and creates free radicals. And so I wanted to know, was there any acute effect of, of sun exposure? And the short answer is no there isn't. So for all those reasons, these tend to be uh, pretty robust measurements. And like I say, some, some measures are going to be a little more noisy than others. But, but in general, these are things that, that, you know, the one thing that would have an impact on the acute measurement of any index of oxidant injury would be if you had some sort of acute illness. So if you had uh, the flu, for example. Um, we know that people who are acutely ill have, um, and and we've probably best studied oxidant injury in the setting of acute illness. We know that people who are acutely ill uh, will have uh, higher levels, and and the sicker you are, the higher they'll tend to be. So if you were doing any kind of tracking of any biomarker, really, over over time, you'd want any individual measurement to be fairly representative of of how you are on a day-to-day basis.
0: Absolutely. So, I actually ran into this problem very early in my tracking. I was tracking uh, high-sensitivity C-reactive protein. And um, the second time I ever tracked it, this is going back like uh, eight eight years or so, um, very early. And... I had actually had an injury to my coccyx by, by falling, I can't remember, like falling over or something very painful. If anyone's done Ugh. that before, horrible.
1: That sounds awful. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, it was Um, because you can't sit down. It's really difficult. But anyway, so I took my CRP and it was like much, much higher, of course, like I can't remember the levels. I think it was eight or something, which was completely off the chart compared to what it was. Yeah. I obviously had to look around and it really wasn't worth me spending my money on that CRP this time just to find out that yes you have a coccyx injury or you know any other injury you should you kind of expect these kind of things. So very very important point there. i just wind off the isoprostane uh, discussion. So we didn't really talk about T-bars. The thing about T-bars and the MDA is when you look at for instance supplements and and things like this you often see that they talk about the T-bars as supporting evidence that it's lowering lipid uh, peroxidation. Do you feel like it's reasonable to trust kind of statements from backing supplements and stuff. Are we really should we really be looking at the isoprostane levels? And can we trust like so? If we're reading stuff on supplements and it's saying it's lowering lipid peroxidation, would you trust that? Or what issues would you see with trusting that t method?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So what I often tell my patients when they ask about supplements is remember the job of the person who printed that label is to sell you the supplement. So know that whether they're making a claim about T-bars and MDA or isoprostanes or, or protein carbonyls or whatever. So know that. The question, I guess, is to dig in and, and find out what are the quality of the data that they're citing. And, and it seems like you're uh, speaking to a, a really engaged and educated audience here. And so my advice would be, Dig into it and, and see, do they cite a study? If so, go find the study and, and look at it. And, and, if, and if it doesn't make sense, go talk to your physician or, or whomever, somebody that, that you know has the, uh, the, some background to help you pick through it and say, because some of the studies that are out there that have looked at T-bars and, and malandialdehyde and all that, they're, they're fine studies. They're well-designed. And you're going to get you know relative quantifications that probably really do tell you something. There are plenty of studies of isoprostanes out there that are not as well-designed and probably aren't as informative as a better-designed study of T-bars. So whether you trust the claim or not, I, I, I always go in with skepticism. And And my first question is, okay, well, let me see if I can find the study they're actually talking about. Um, and if I can, I'll, I'll look at it and say, okay, this is actually pretty good, or eh, this, this has some problems. And then the other thing is... Independent of that, I'll look for other investigations of the same thing. So maybe the study they cite isn't that good, but there are 10 other studies that have been better done and they actually seem to suggest, yeah, there's something here, or you know, the conclusion is no, nah, there's really nothing here. And and so so I take I say take each on a case-by-case basis, but get as much data as you can before you spend your hard-earned money and, and uh, educate yourself on the front end.
0: Great. Is there anything in particular which would, um, if you were reading a study and it had T-bars in it, is there anything particular you would look out for that marker which you'd be like, ah, that could be an issue?
1: Oh, yeah. So um, it, sometimes it's hard to pick out what can be the issues. Uh, if, they say, if I'm reading a study, this happened once, I was reading a study where they were analyzing samples that were 10 years old And that gave me pause because anything that sits around long enough, unless it's stored under really rigorous conditions, will show generation of malandialdehyde and and isoprostanes and all the other products of oxidant uh, injury or or oxidative stress just by virtue of sitting around. So when I saw that, it was a red flag to me that, oh, I, I need to interpret these data cautiously. So if and you want to look at does the group are, are they making comparisons between two groups and how comparable are those groups really exactly as you you know as you alluded to controlling for the things that could influence that did they study was there intervention in a group who on average was ten or twenty years younger than their control group um, well that's a problem uh, for reasons that we've already discussed so so I look for things and these may sound goofy, like, well, of course they would control for that, but sometimes they don't or can't or won't or didn't or whatever. And and so you just look for things like that. So, and that's true. Not like I say, that's true, not just for, for T-bars measurements, but for anything.
0: Right. So there's nothing specific that you'd highlight that, you know, is a weakness of the T-bars that you would, you'd be like, oh, not
1: really. Yeah. I, I'll say that the one caveat, I guess, with T-bars is that the more complex the sample that they're measuring, uh, the more cautiously I'd interpret the data. So for example, if it's a study of T-bars in urine, urine as a biological sample is actually pretty simple. It's got salt and a little bit of protein and a few other things, that's about it. Plasma, (laughs) on the other hand, uh, is really complex. It's got proteins and lipids and a few cells. And So if you were making measurements of uh, using the T-bars, Uh, protocol in urine, I would tend to hang a little more validity on that than if you were in plasma, Plasma, I think is a dirtier biological matrix.
0: That's interesting, because I think most people assume that blood's the ultimate measure. Um, So just on the isoprostane, does it correlate, like does urine correlate well with the blood sample levels? So are they pretty much exactly the same?
1: They'll tell you the same information, and, and the nice thing with isoprostanes is that, because we've had it come up before where people say, well, how do you know they aren't being made in the kidney, and that that's really what you're measuring? It's a fair question. Um, so the, the one nice thing about isoprostanes is that we also have uh, defined metabolites that are excreted in the urine, so the only way you can get that is if you form the compound, released it into the blood, and then the enzymes that, that metabolize isoprostanes had a chance to work on it. And so, so you can measure urinary metabolites, and they're very stable compounds, and say, there's no way this was generated in the kidney. This had to come from the total body pool. So, but, but in general, yes, they do correlate.
0: Great, great. Thank you very much. Okay, so I know that you've been starting to get involved in a, in a project that's going on with someone who wanted to change something in their life. So uh, you brought that up, and it's a very interesting little uh, case study I thought, um, to bring up on, on the program. So it's called Feeding Danny. Could you give us a quick background about it?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. Thanks for asking about it. Yeah, so um, this is a project that started with my friend and my wife's friend, uh, Danny. Danny, like a lot of people, has struggled with his weight over time, and and Danny is very overweight. In medical terms, you would say he's morbidly obese. He carries a lot of extra weight. I'm guessing, and I don't know for sure. I'm guessing he weighs somewhere around 350, 400 pounds. He's a big dude, and has health problems associated with his weight. He's got joint problems, sleep apnea, asthma, all sorts of things, and so he has tried uh, many different ways to, to get a handle on this. And this had a lot of trouble. And and like I said, I don't, I, you know, he's clearly not alone in that. And so what came about was two friends of his approached him with the idea that they wanted to stage what you might describe as a dietary intervention. They said, if, you, if you'll allow us to do it, we will take over your diet for a year's time and change everything about what you're eating. We're, we will... We will make sure that the only thing going in to the system are all natural, organic, pesticide-free, hormone-free foods. And that by doing that, we they said, we feel certain that you will not only lose weight, but you'll see improvements on any number of, of health-related measures and, and axes. And so when I heard about this, I said, well, I, I would love to help out if I can because uh, I'm Love my friend Danny, and I want to help him. But beyond that, I I thought this was a really interesting concept on a single person, as you say, a case study, and that's really what it is. Can you do this dramatic intervention and see a positive change? My, what I thought I could offer was to bring the the medical perspective to things, you know, uh, just in terms of overall fitness, but also bring the science perspective, because I come from a slightly different place from from the two women that are doing this. Their, Their names are Leilani and Vanessa. I. I tend to think about things in a very sort of pragmatic, low-level kind of way. I think this will work because if you're eating a diet like what they're describing, and it does include meat and that sort of thing, as we discussed, this is not a, a, a strict vegan diet or anything like that. But I think if you're eating a diet that's high in fruits and vegetables and whole grains and lower in saturated fats and all that kind of stuff, you, you're going to lose weight because your caloric intake is going to go down. i suspect what we're going to learn is that as we go along, they are thinking more along the lines of eliminating toxins from the diet and that sort of thing. And, and, and I, I always halt a little at that because as I say, just as I don't like the term oxidative stress, because it's non-specific, I don't like the idea of, of toxins because that's non-specific. What do you mean? What toxin? What can I measure it? What le- what are the levels? That kind of thing. And so it doesn't really matter who's right as long as it works. And so I'm, I'm excited to, to participate in this. What they're proposing to do is to do this intervention for a year. They've, they've uprooted their lives in Chicago and have moved to Nashville. And uh, they just got here about a week ago. And what they want to do is do this for a year and document it on film and hopefully at the end of it um, have a, a true representation of, of what happens um, over the course of that year.
0: Right. Those things are great, like documentaries, because they can be inspiring for people, you know, often more inspiring than the show when we're talking about scientific data like this one <laughs> for, for a lot of people. So they're really, really great. But it would also be like really cool um, if there were some controls in place to kind of understand a little bit like what really did happen. So my, my understanding is that the intervention is basically um, a diet of organic foods, right? So they, they're going to be buying specifically organic, uh, certified organic produce and probably they're going to basically eliminate all of the stuff in the middle of the, uh, we like to say, in the middle of the supermarket, right? So you walk around the edges and you'll grab all the vegetables, fruit, uh, meats and so on. But most of the stuff in packets isn't going to be included in the diet.
1: That's correct. Yeah. And ideally, I think they'll actually, in as many instances as possible, eliminate the supermarket and and go to... The farm where it's being raised, you know, and, and Nashville is actually a good place to do that. There are a lot of certified organic farms and you can locally source just about everything. So so this is kind of a, an ideal place to try what they're proposing.
0: I guess some of the other are like kind of confounders in terms of diet, because the diet world is so complex in terms of all the people with different opinions is whether it's grass-fed meat or it's grain-fed meat, there's a whole question of grains. In this, in this case, it seems like grains isn't the issue. But like we were just talking before, like it's important just to define exactly what the diet intervention is, what the limitations are and, and what the limitations aren't to kind of get started. What kind of other things would you feel would be worthwhile uh, controlling for? I understand that the, the budget probably isn't going to be really high, right? In terms of testing um, and, and things like that, but there's probably some things they, they could track and it would probably maybe help the doc- documentary or, you know, just be useful to kind of look at afterwards and be like, ah, oh, you know, so maybe we can say that toxins did play a role or, um, although that I haven't come across so far, a kind of generic marker of toxins like you were kind of alluding to. I'm, I'm not sure it is a, a generic toxin marker, unless you want to say oxidant injury potentially. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. Right. So what would be, be your thoughts and kind of, if you wanted to get a baseline today before everything started and to see where things are at and then, I know, what kind of timescale would you control certain things? And, and at the end, in, in one year's time, what, what would you like to control for if you could?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So, And this is something that we're in discussions about right now because you're exactly right. Budget is going to be limiting. And so, so there are some things that I think we'll need to do just from a, a general sort of health monitoring standpoint. There's some things I'd like to do. Uh, that we may or may not be able to do. But all of it is in service to trying to figure out, yeah, did did anything actually work? Where my thinking is, is that we're going to need to look at some really standard basic uh, measures of uh, health, particularly metabolic health. And this is real simple stuff like cholesterol, like hemoglobin A1C, blood sugar, triglyceride levels in the blood. If I had basic kidney and liver function, that kind of thing. If If I had... All of if I had a complete wish list, I'd probably want to know about thyroid function and that kind of thing. And then to branch out from the traditional clinical indices, uh, as far as biomarkers and, and thinking about what else I would want to know, I would actually be really interested to know what the circulating levels of isoprostanes were um, and compare that with Circulating malondialdehyde or t bars. I would I would love to know high sensitivity CRP. I would love to know what plasma levels of ascorbate and and you know vitamin E and and you know sort of all the other small molecule antioxidants. I, I think that would all be fascinating and to see how those change uh, with this fairly profound diet modification that uh, that's going to happen. How much of that we'll be able to do, I don't really know since some of those things make sense clinically, some of those things are, are more on the research side. And this is an interesting case study, but, but in, in, in the strictest terms, this is not a research study. And so, um, so we're going to have to be a little judicious in, in how we go about these things. But nonetheless, I think what we'll end up doing is certainly hitting all the things that, that we need to look at just from a basic health and safety standpoint and then I hope that there's uh, additional funds available to dig into some of these other things, not only to get a baseline, but hopefully to to measure them periodically over time and see what, what did we really do.
0: Yeah, that's it's great. And I, I think you've mentioned a lot of different things. And I, I think especially for, for people to get the value out of the, the markers that they're tracking and given how most things are still pretty expensive today. Some of the things you mentioned, I thought, particularly kind of practical or a blood sugar regulation you make just taking like the, the blood sugar reading i recently had a had a conversation with bob true who's one on quantified Barbie. he was on one of the recent podcasts and he tracked his blood sugar every day for a, a long time and it was interesting to see it went up and down all the time based on what he'd been doing the night before and everything um so the problem what i realize is like sometimes when i'm having my blood panels i'll get my fasting blood sugar taken and i realized i'm kind of wasting my time because unless I've been very careful about what I'm doing the night before in terms of exercise and intake and, and everything. But on the other hand, there's a pretty cheap method. There's the Precision Extra uh, pinprick um, blood sugar devices, right, where you can take a couple of readings. Or it's pretty cheap. Um, unfortunately, you have to prick your finger and you have to think about like, okay, you know, is Danny going to want to prick his finger uh, like uh, once every day or maybe once a week or like whatever you're trying to control for? Obviously, blood sugar regulation is one thing that's going to, pr- you know it fit with the research that there's definitely going to be some changes there one of the things i was thinking of is cardiovascular risk is that something he's worried about given the weight and everything we, we worry about that a lot there's one of the tests out there um, that i've been meaning to get someone on the show for for a while is ldl particle number uh which the research has been looking at more sharply because it correlates better uh the number than some other things so they're using crp which is you know when you mentioned too. um so just kind of throwing out some of the things that i thought uh would be interesting and of course like a weighing scale. Because in terms of like, I think one of the great things about this project is that you can take pictures every day and obviously there's going to be video footage, which is going to be motivatory for other people. But sometimes you can't see it yourself as well when you're measuring. But if you've got a scale um, and you're just jumping on it every day, that's a very easy thing to keep you motivated to see that something is happening. We have to be aware of something that you said earlier in our conversation today, which was um, that there were benefits being seen with caloric restriction before any any of the pounds were coming off in, in your example, right? So we have to also be aware that although sometimes maybe the weight isn't coming off, there are other improvements that are going on inside our bodies.
1: That's absolutely true. And that's that's why I, I hope we'll be able to quantify as many different parameters as, as possible. As you say, in terms of a quantified body, a quantified life, a, a bathroom scale is probably one of the most useful things you can have. But you're exactly right in that you know, let's say that weight loss, uh, let's be pessimistic and say that there isn't as much weight loss as we think they're going to be, you know, that there's going to be, we might still have won a, a real victory, but you got to know what to look for. You got to be able to look for it. And, and so for exactly that reason, I, I think the more carefully selected data we can have in, in this case, and this is true, not just in, in the case of feeding Danny, but in a broader sense, um, I, I think that's useful. You know, my, my clinical life is uh, in part spent in the intensive care unit taking care of, of critically ill patients. And that's about as quantified as you can get uh, on an acute basis. And, and all of that information can be really helpful, not only as individual data points and not only as trends, but also as a gestalt of, of what's going on with, with a person. And I think this uh, may be a similar conceptual exercise over a much longer Timescale, and so, so I'm hopeful that that we'll be able to financially able to look at all these things. But if nothing else, like you say, you know, daily weights and and looking at blood sugar over time, and things like you know, one of the things that that I hope we'll be able to do, I, I one of my one of the sort of quantified self uh, measures that I haven't personally gotten into, but but I think has a lot of Potential utility for not much investment is looking at actigraphy. You know things like you know the fitness trackers and whatever, but just getting a, a sense of over days, weeks, what is your activity level? What are you really doing? And patterns emerge that you would never observe as you say on a day-to-day basis.
0: That would be interesting for the, for this project as well because like I'm sure that. As your weight goes down, your activity naturally tends to rise.
1: That would be my hypothesis. And
0: it's a benefit what most people aren't going to think of like straight away. But it would be great just to have a fit. be wearing a Fitbit. Uh, we were discussing one of, in one of our last episodes about the whole market. And basically, like, the Fitbit tends to be one of the better trackers at the moment or another one. As long as it's giving you directional input, it'd be really interesting just to see that. So I think these projects are great, uh, like I said, for inspiring other people for change. Um, so good luck with that in terms of your own personal life, just always interested to find out what people are doing with themselves. You know, it's like, are there any biomarkers or personal data you track on any kind of routine basis or monitor just related to health, longevity or performance, anything about your body really?
1: Yeah. So the bathroom scale is, is there. So I, I track my weight, um, every day. And I and I track that pretty closely. At times, I've even you know charted it out, made graphs, that sort of thing. And and that's been really informative. Um, I'm a pretty careful calorie counter. I, I keep a real close count of uh, on a daily basis of the calories going in. Um,
0: and is that just by kind of eyeballing? You are like that's roughly. 200 I'm consuming right there. It's That's-
1: about that. I mean, I spent a lot of time reading labels and that kind of
0: thing. Um,
1: I've had periods where I had the flexibility in my schedule to actually weigh foods and that sort of stuff and and carefully measure out serving sizes. And, and I love being able to do that um, You know, in terms of satisfying the practical demands of every day. It's, it's a lot of times sort of by eye, but I've been doing it for a while. And so I actually have a pretty good database built up of okay. I know that this is going to be this many calories, and and so on. Um, and I do that on on essentially on a daily basis.
0: Okay, great. So you kind of track roughly how much you consumed in a day of calories, and you track your weight. Has anything interesting come out of that for you? Like in either it be accountability, you know, what what kind of value have you got out of that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So like so many people, I've struggled with my weight for a long time. Too. And, and so my heaviest, I was probably about 230,
0: 240 pounds. Just out of interest, how are you now?
1: Yeah, so now I weigh about, I weigh between 145, 150.
0: Okay, so um, like a big deal.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I lost difference. a lot of weight. Some of it was diet modification, some of it was activity. Most of it was diet, actually. Um, but, but by being very careful about tracking calories and and tracking daily weights and that sort of thing, I've been able to take that weight off and and keep it off. And that's worked really well for me. It's also made me very conscious about the dietary choices that I make. So in general I'm lazy isn't the right word, but I I like to spend mental energy on particular things. And one of the things that I don't love to spend a lot of time thinking about is what am I going to eat for any given meal. Or if I'm hungry and I want a snack, I want to sort of check that box and then get on with whatever it is I'm actually interested in doing. And so that coupled with being careful about calorie counts has really – had a great positive impact on on my diet because the things that you can mindlessly eat without destroying your daily calorie count tend to be pretty healthy things, and so so that's worked really well for me. And I've had some patients that that's worked really well for. Um, others are are much more exercise oriented, and and that's the that's the area that I've started more recently tracking my exercise over time with following you know how many either how many calories burned in any given workout session or you know I'm, I'm mostly doing treadmill and and cardio aerobic kind of
0: stuff. So using the machines or using your own device? Yeah. I
1: use the machines typically. I haven't yet invested in like I say an, an actigraph or a fitbit or anything like that um which I think would be really interesting. But you know I've started tracking what kind of distance do I do and and to to motivate myself a little bit because I know that the piece that I personally am missing is regular physical activity and you know we I think the data are really solid that 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 has health benefits beyond weight control and that sort of thing. And so, so I'm trying to live by example is uh, when I tell my patients to do this, <laughs> and these are people, you know, so I'm a, a pulmonary doctor by specialization. So the patients that I see all have lung disease, So here I am telling these people who have difficulty drawing breath to go exercise. And it's pretty hypocritical of me if I if I don't make the effort myself.
0: Great. Great. Thank you for that. Okay. So last question. If we're, thinking, we're talking about data on the show. So Do you have one recommendation, like what's the most important insight you have about using data in a way that's going to be valuable to improve health, longevity, or performance? What one recommendation would would it be?
1: If I were going to say anything about using data to guide um, performance, health status, anything, it would be to pay close attention to know what it is that the data are telling you or going to tell you before you get it and know what you're going to do about it before you get it. This gets to the whole actionable thing. So so not all data are useful. Um, if you don't know what the data are really telling you, not useful. And if you know what they're telling you, but you can't do anything about it, not useful. And this is true in really any context, I think. So so before I would get a test result or order any kind of, of assay or whatever, I would want to know, And this is, and I do this... In, in my research lab, I do this in my clinical practice. Before you order a test, before you run an experiment, have an idea of what it's going to tell you and what you're going to do with the likely or the potential outcomes. If, if it's this, then I'll do this. If it's that, then I'll do this other thing. Um, and if you can't set that up on the front end, That's not going to be a useful piece of data to you. And so don't waste your time or spend your
0: money. Great. And we talk often like about things being actionable, which is kind of like a jargon. um, It's a bit of a jargon world. word. So I really liked the explanation you just gave, which was very clear. And it was kind of like an exercise, right? It's like before plan what action you're going to take once you find out that the data is this, once you find out the data is that. And that's a way of learning if it's actionable, that it's actually going to be valuable. But I don't, I think, you know, a lot of people don't think about it. So I think that's a really great piece of advice. It's a great exercise to before anything you're going to do to think through that way. It'll kind of force you to understand if it's going to be a value to you in terms of taking action or not.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's why I forced myself to do it. Because if you don't know, yeah, if you can't make a plan, then it's probably not actionable. And, and so maybe wait until you have other information or maybe discard it entirely and, and change the line of inquiry.
0: Well, Josh, like final thing, where can we reach you? uh you getting contacted? Are you on Twitter? Like what are you on websites? <laughs> website? Like where can people find you?
1: That's a great question. No, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a Luddite. I, I don't even have a Facebook page, but um, I'm pretty findable. So, so a Google search for, uh, for Josh Bessel, uh will find me. I'm on the faculty at Vanderbilt university. So, uh, so on that Josh Vassal. And I think there's a, there there are a couple other people out there with the same name, but but a Google search and, and if you include Vanderbilt, you'll find me. That'll link to you know my faculty page that that talks about my particular background and my research interests and that sort of thing. And um, and then I think email addresses are are there too, and so I I can uh, be reached any number of ways. And. Um, I've I've spared the world my um, thoughts uh, 140 characters at a time. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so like I said, I'm a little behind the times there. But but yeah, I, I, I'm pretty findable online, and that's probably the best way to do it.
0: Great. Well, Josh, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. It's been a great discussion.
1: Oh no, Damien, thank you. It's a pleasure.
0: To get more of the Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website for QuantifiedBody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot n-e-t. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook we are at facebook.com forward slash quantified body podcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at Damien at the quantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at thequantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.